Please be seated. Thank you, team, for leading us. Um, appreciate the work all you guys do every week. I got some familiar faces over here. I got another familiar face here. Sherry, it's great to have you on team again for the first time in a while. Awesome to have you back with us. And we have a special guest guitar player with us. I have to point out, this is Randall back here um, who has a special connection to somebody else on the stage because he put a ring on Claire's finger uh, a couple of months ago. So we're proud of you guys. We're happy for you. Thank you for joining us, man. We really appreciate it. Um, these guys are going to be back later as we continue to sing uh, the close of our service. Right now, we're going to turn our attention to God's word, having spoken to him of his greatness to us, of the beauty of the gospel, and our appreciation of it. Uh, we now come recognizing we're sinful people, but cleansed because of the blood of Christ to hear from our God. In the late 1930s, the uh, Nazi armies were rolling across the European continent, and the British public did not want to face the reality of Hitler's aggression. Who could blame them? Uh, less than 20 years before, they had fought you know, the war to end all wars, World War I. They had given up many of their husbands and many of their sons to beat back the aggression, and it was now time to recover from that, to enjoy peace and prosperity. It was not time to vanquish another monster. The prime minister at the time, Neville Chamberlain, sought to reason with Hitler and appeal to him uh, rather than oppose him militarily, uh, a strategy that, in retrospect, clearly did not work. As the Nazi armies continued to roll across Europe, they eventually invaded Norway, a situation that finally forced the British to respond militarily, and so Chamberlain sort of half-heartedly sent a British force to confront the German army in Norway, and they were absolutely decimated. So unprepared were they for the realities of fighting again. They were barely able to retreat back to England with their lives. This paved the way for a new prime minister. Change was needed, and the British public knew it. So on May 10, 1940, Winston Churchill took office to lead a British public that was confused and fearful. Three days later, he stood before Parliament to, out, to, to, to lay out his vision for where they needed to go and who they needed to be as a nation for the foreseeable future. He, he presented to Parliament the grim view that there was only one way to future prosperity. They were going to have to go to war. No matter how resistant people were to accept it, the Nazis would have to be defeated, and that was going to take everything they had. During that speech, Churchill sought to put some steel into British spines, to, to galvanize them to face a hard road, even though they had so recently just faced a desperately hard road. And he galvanized them with probably some of his most famous words ever. I have nothing to offer, Churchill said, but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Now, if you were a politician listening to your marketing advisors on your messaging, that's probably not the kind of thing you would be told to say. That's not a kind of message anybody wanted to hear. But Churchill was convinced the British public needed to hear it. Uh, that day, he received very strong support for his new role in his new cabinet as prime minister from not only parliament, but from the public. And he later, in the face of that affirmation, said to one of the British generals, poor people, referring to the British public, these poor people, they trust me, and I can give them nothing but disaster for quite a long time. Churchill knew he had a very uncomfortable message to give to people, but he was convinced it was the only right one. You see, there comes a time when, when all people need to be rallied to face something that we'd rather not face, but, but we must. And it's no different for followers of Jesus. Uh, we too need to face times where we need to be rallied to face things we'd rather not face. In fact, that is an essential part of being a follower of Jesus. 
And much of the New Testament was written to equip Christians to walk what will invariably be a very long and arduous and difficult road. Much of the New Testament, one of the major themes of the New Testament, in fact, is to put some steel into quavering spines of Jesus' followers to walk the difficult path that God has before us. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. This is a, kind of a rally cry sermon, as we're going to be in a text we'll get to here in just a moment, but it reflects so many other texts in the New Testament. Uh, there is great hope in the passages of Scripture we're going to see today, but this is not a feel-good message. It's not. This is not the kind of message most pastors, including myself, roll out of bed on a Sunday morning excited to give. People come together. We're struggling. We need comfort. We need encouragement. We need hope. That's true. We need all of those things. Sometimes we need God to put a little steel in our spines to equip us for the task that he has given to us. So here's where we're going to be for the next couple of weeks. Normally, I would have had this out ahead of time. I'm about a week behind, so I appreciate your patience on all of that. Like, I'm caught up to where I need to be, but uh, didn't get information out as much ahead of time. Uh, in a few weeks from now, we're going to start our next sermon series, which will be in the book of Acts. And I'm really looking forward to that. We will uh, take our cues about who we are to be as a church in our day-to-day -day from Scripture's account of how the earliest churches in history turned the Mediterranean world upside down for Christ. And I think there's a lot of lessons that are relevant for us today. I'm looking forward to that. But before then, we're going to spend three Sundays. So this morning and then the next two. We're going to spend three Sundays uh, looking back at three lessons from the Bible's perhaps most famous or infamous book. Three lessons from the Bible's final book. Three lessons from the book of Revelation. What brought me there is that we covered the book of Revelation about three years ago as a church. Many of you were here. You remember that sermon series. We went from start to finish through the whole thing. A lot of major themes came out of that study that were helpful even at the time. But, but boy, in this current age, in this current era, in this current moment of, of a pandemic and wars going on all around the world, and a, a social and political unrest and racism and, and riots and protests going on. And then on top of all of that, an incredibly divisive political season and presidential election that sort of brings all the divisions of society right to the surface. I found myself thinking more and more about some of those lessons that we saw from the Bible in Revelation. So we want to spend three weeks, certainly not covering that whole book. It's too much book to cover in three weeks, but we want to cover three of the main lessons that I think are relevant and applicable, applicable to us as modern American Christians today. The three lessons are simply this. The first is that life is war. So Christians need to develop a wartime mindset. Secondly, Christ is one. So Christians put our hope in the ultimate victory of our Savior. And then lastly, heaven is coming. And so Christians anchor ourselves in that great hope. It's important to ask ourselves how we're framing our expectations and to let the Bible frame them because I wonder in this current climate in which we find ourselves at the responses that I see of so many professing followers of Jesus these days to the hard realities that are going on around us. And they are hard. They are really hard. But how we're responding shows where our hearts are anchored. And I have to wonder if, in some cases at least, the anger or the fear or the exhaustion and disillusionment that so often is coming out of the mouths of and off of the keyboards and social media accounts of professing Jesus followers is really reflective of a heart that is anchored deeply in Scripture. So I just want to invite you in with, these, with me these next three weeks to see what would Scripture show us? How would a, a Scripture-anchored heart respond? Because thankfully, not only is the Bible not silent about that, the Bible speaks volumes about that. So today we're going to start with the first idea 
from the book of Revelation, that life is war. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn them to Revelation chapter 12. Last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 12. This morning we're going to be in verses 7 through 12. While you're turning your Bibles there, let me give a little bit of context here to what we're about to read because we're jumping into the middle of a rather bizarre uh, and unusual book here in the Bible. And then I'll read this text and we'll, we'll see what we can take away from it. Revelation chapter 12 is the lengthy record of a vision that the Apostle John received. He's the human author of this book. So he's seeing this vision with all of this symbolic imagery in it. And we're going to look at uh, basically one-third of that vision this morning. The, the Revelation chapter 12 vision kind of centers around a cosmic struggle between the forces of heaven and the forces of Satan and the ultimate defeat of Satan by God and his armies. In the midst of that, we encounter verses 7 through 12. Let me read this together, and we'll see what God has for us today. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. Now war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. This is God's word for us today. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to behold your beauty and wonderful things in your word. Instruct us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, usually reading about uh, wars and dragons is the stuff of Friday night uh, fantasy films on TV at home, not necessarily what you talk about in church on a Sunday morning. Uh, Revelation is, is a book is distinctive in the Bible. Uh, we talked about this at length a few years ago, but just briefly let me remind us of a couple of things. It's distinctive in its writing style. It's very purposefully full of, and it communicates the majority of its message through symbols. Uh, imagery, things that aren't literal, but they point to literal truths, right? So, for example, at the beginning and also at the end of Revelation, um, Jesus is pictured as a man who has a double-edged broadsword coming out of his mouth instead of a tongue, right? Not literally true. Jesus doesn't literally have a sword for a tongue, right? That's an image, but it points to a literal reality that the words of Jesus one day will be the final judgment on all unrepentant evildoers who will meet their final end. And that is literally true. And so you see how the image, which is not a literal description of something, depicts something that is literally true. That's kind of how the book of Revelation works. Now the interesting thing about all of these images, and we've seen several just even in our short passage this morning, we'll get to in just a second, the nature of these images in the book of Revelation, what they point to is not usually defined or explained really clearly in the text of Revelation itself. Few exceptions, but for the most part, you just see the images. The Bible doesn't explain what they mean. And the reason is because most of them are explained by the Old Testament. So readers of Revelation figure out what the symbolism mean this means as they go back to Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and other places in the Old Testament. We did quite a bit of that three years ago to be able to understand it. So there's a cohesiveness and a logic to what initially sounds sort of crazy, but it's not just, it's not just given to you, right? He doesn't just say, here's an image and here's what it means. Now, 
That's the norm. But I did say a second ago there's a few exceptions. There's a few times in the book of Revelation where we see an image and it's like John, the human author of this book, almost can't help himself. He has to explain exactly what the image itself means. And our text today is one of those exceptions. Here we see this fantastical, this wild image of what our English Bibles call a dragon because we have like a European background and that's what we think of with, you know, knights in shining armor. In the Bible, it's probably better translated a, a, a monstrous serpent, like a sea serpent. That's the image that John is seeing. But he tells us, it's not that there's literally some giant serpent somewhere, that serpent stands for something that's literal, a real person. And it turns out that real person is identified by name. In fact, in verse 9, He's identified by three names. That great, uh, sorry, the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent, who is called the devil, and Satan. He is the deceiver of the whole world. Now this is really significant. We're going to see three things this morning. Um, we're going to see that life is war. Secondly, we're going to see that, that Satan loses. And lastly, we're going to see the somewhat somber victory song of heaven. There's an interesting tension there. It's a somber victory song of heaven. Uh, first of all, where do we get this idea that life is war? Well, it comes from the very beginning of this image right here, where he defines what this serpent is. This serpent that he's seeing in his image, John actually writes, he's the ancient serpent, that ancient serpent, a specific ancient serpent. Now, if you're a reader of your Bible and you think of a serpent that goes all the way back to ancient times, all the way back to the beginnings, all the way back to the genesis of the Bible story, is that enough hints? <laughs> what does that immediately call to your mind? The ancient serpent. You see, this is taking us back to Genesis chapter 3, right? Here's the Garden of Eden. God created a perfectly beautiful world. Adam and Eve, people that were whole and sinless and designed to function as God's vice regents ruling over the world and be in perfect harmony with one another and with creation and ultimately with God himself. And it was all wonderful until you get to chapter 3 of the Bible, chapter 3 of Genesis, where a serpent comes in, but this is no ordinary snake. He's talking. This is Satan in the form of a serpent comes in and he opposes the whole thing. So we know exactly what this dragon depicts in John's vision in Revelation 12. This is a reference to Satan. And by calling him the ancient serpent, John is trying to take our minds all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where the whole problem started. There Satan appeared as a serpent to oppose God, God's plan, and God's people. And by the way, that's the second name that's given to him here, ancient serpent, but he's also called Satan, a word that we use like a proper name, like John or Fred. Oh, he's called Satan. Actually, the word in the original Hebrew means opponent. It means adversary. That's who Satan is. He's the one who is opposed. He is adversarial with God. You can sense the, the conflict that is at the core of human history. And how does he oppose God's plan and God's people? He does so by deceiving them. That was certainly what he did in the case of Adam and Eve. He deceived them into taking God's grand plan and thinking much smaller. Although he deceived them, they thought they were thinking bigger. He said, if you eat that tree, you will become like God. You will be even, your experience will be more expansive. You'll be even better off than you were, which is crazy because they already were like God in the most important sense. They were made in God's image. They already had everything, but he deceived them into thinking they could have more, and instead they made themselves far less. They tried to become their own little gods, call their own shots, decide for themselves what was right and wrong. And so Satan deceived them. And that's what his third title here in Revelation 12 means. He's the ancient serpent, he's Satan. He is called the devil. <laughs> the devil. A word that can mean anything from accuser to deceiver. So that's who Satan, the opponent, is. He is the accuser of God's people. He is the deceiver of God's people. So why did John do something so unusual here in Revelation 12? Why does he tell us exactly what the symbol means when he normally doesn't do that? I think it's so that our minds as readers would go just where we've gone these last couple minutes. 
He's deliberately trying to take us back to Genesis chapter 3. Why? Because that's where conflict in human history began. And he wants us to understand that there is, there is now enmity in between God and God's plan and Satan and what he's trying to accomplish in the world. Back in Genesis chapter 3, 15, God tells Satan as part of the curse, he tells the serpent, um, the, a descendant of the woman, the Messiah, a descendant of Eve, will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. The Bible says, God, God tells Satan, I will put enmity between you and the descendant of the woman. It sets the stage for this cosmic conflict between God's savior, Messiah, they would have called him, and Satan. God's savior is trying to redeem people. Satan is trying to undo all of God's plan. Here's the point of all this. You hear the language of conflict? Opposition, deceiving, opponent, enmity. All of human history, every moment of life we live out, the Bible is telling us, is lived out against a backdrop of cosmic conflict. Or to put it more shortly, life is war. Life is war. That's what the Bible tells Christians. It always has been. And until Christ brings history to its ultimate consummation, it will continue to be. Which means that for followers of Jesus today, the Bible constantly exhorts Christians towards a wartime mentality. Now, that's not necessarily a warlike spirit. We're not talking about developing aggression here, certainly not aggression toward people. We're talking about a wartime mentality. In other words, like a mentality that says, I'm going to have to do without for a while. A mentality that says, this is going to be a long haul. It's going to be hard at times, and it is going to be a tough, long road, and that's the road we're called to walk. We plan to have to endure. We plan to experience difficulty. We expect that we will need to steal ourselves by God's word, God's spirit, and God's people because it is a long, hard road and none of us can do it on our own so that we can walk the road that God has before us until final victory is at last achieved. That's a wartime mentality. And that's what the entire Bible is trying to get God's people to embrace. So raises an important question. What do we expect? What do we expect? Members of Harvest Community Church, followers of Jesus, what do you expect out of life? A long-term friend of mine and somebody who was a mentor of mine many years ago loved to always talk about the difference between expectations and reality. He would draw this little graph, like, like a geometric angle, and he would say, you know, the difference, if my expectations are way up high, but reality is way down here, then there's a big gap between my expectations and reality. That gap, he would always say, that's your level of frustration. That's your level of disappointment or anger or disillusionment with life, because life didn't turn out the way you expect, right? And he would just go on this so much, and we'd be in the middle of a conversation, to go, ah, expectations versus reality. And sometimes he would just go, he wouldn't say anything. He just raised his eyes and he'd do this. And we're just like, ah, Bob, stop it. But he's right, right? Expectations. Are my expectations way up here and reality's down here? If my expectations are way out of whack, I'm going to be frustrated because life doesn't meet my expectations. On the other hand, if my expectations are much closer in line with reality, I'm much less likely to be shocked, surprised, discouraged, or thrown off course. When we talk about developing a wartime mindset, it's probably no secret to anybody listening that American culture doesn't do long-time sacrifice through difficult times particularly well. We are just not really good at that one. We have so much that is given to us, and so our experience, and I'm speaking to somebody who was born and raised here, I think this way too. We just come to expect that, man, when you get hungry, there's food, even fast food, of your choice, quickly and readily available. Uh, when we get bored, we expect entertainment quickly and readily accessible to us at our fingertips. When we get sick, we expect to get well. We expect to recover. And if we can't on our own, then we expect that there will be doctors and other medical professionals who are accessible to us to help us get well. And we have a need 
whether it's a new furnace for our house or a new water pump for our car or anything else, we have an army of experts who can, whom we can call to fix it quickly and with a smile. And if they don't, we can sue them. We have an army of attorneys that will be happy to sue them so that we get what's coming to us. We are surrounded by systems that are designed to make life work, to make life comfortable, and to address our needs and our wants. Left to our own, it develops a mindset where we expect that life should be good. And when it's not, that's a problem. It needs to be fixed. It needs to be fixed yesterday because the normal expectation is that life works. Life is comfortable. Life is secure. And then we open up our Bibles and we read that life is war. Brothers and sisters, there's a conflict. (laughs) There are two different worldviews that are pulling on the hearts and the minds of every American Christian. What do we expect? Let me be a little bit more specific. If you think about your own thoughts and emotions over these past few months as a Christian, whether it's politics or government mandates on the pandemic or racial racism riots and and social justice talk or whatever the issue is. What are your emotions showing? This is a hard time for all of us, but, but are your emotions showing that this is a hard time, but by God's grace we're moving on? Or are your emotions showing that I don't expect life should be this difficult and I'm mad about it and it's got to change? Do my experiences, do your experiences reflect an understanding that life is war? The backdrop of history is this cosmic conflict, but we're also told in this text what happens with this conflict. We're told that Satan loses. We're told that Satan loses. As the narrative um, goes on, actually as it begins, war in verse 7 arose in heaven, Um, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and his angels, they fought back, but he was defeated and what's more, he was evicted. There was no longer any place found for him in heaven. Now this is some some good news. Uh, Life may be war, but unlike Winston Churchill on May 13th, 1940, who could go to the British public saying, this is the only path forward, but he couldn't guarantee to them that they would win. God says to Christians, this is the only path forward, but I've got good news. I guarantee the victory has already been won. This is where the hope comes in. You see, the fatal blow that was promised in Genesis 3.15, the son of the woman will crush your head, but you will bruise his heel. He will defeat you, although he will be wounded in the process. He will defeat you. That blow was already struck by Christ when he died on the cross and rose victoriously from the dead. He didn't defeat Satan despite the suffering that he endured, the whipping and the beating and the crucifixion. He defeated Satan by means of the suffering that he endured, the very act of stomping on the serpent's head, which was how you killed a snake back then. So it was a picture of saying, Satan, you're going to be ultimately defeated and crushed. The very act of stomping on Satan's head cost him dearly. And by his suffering, he triumphed over Satan. Notice how Satan is referred to here in verse 10 um, as the accuser of our brothers. He accuses them night and day before our God. You know, when you read the Old Testament book of Job and it starts out with this, this picture of Satan walking into the throne room of heaven and accusing the followers of God, accusing Job of just being in it for the money and for the blessings and not really loving God and so on and so forth. And like, we see God having to deal with him and we're like, why, doesn't, why does God even put up with this? Why doesn't God kick Satan out? Guess what? I got good news. He did. He did. Christ did that when he died and he rose from the dead. He ultimately defanged Satan by kicking him out. If you've got your Bibles, turn quickly to Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. Colossians 2, 14 puts it this way. 
Back up to verse 13 to get the context. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. That is, when Jesus rose from the dead, he also gave you new life. Now listen to this. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. These he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's referring to Satan in heaven. He disarmed them and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. You know what the Bible is saying there? When Jesus died for sins once and for all, he forever took all the wind out of the sails of Satan who says, Macarino is a sinner, God, you should reject him. And he could have said that for centuries, and he was absolutely right. And Jesus comes along and pays the penalty for my sin. And so that accusation, this guy is a sinner, God, you should reject him, is totally empty now. It's totally meaningless because on the cross, Jesus says, it's finished. The debt has been paid in full. And so that that has the effect of taking all the wind out of Satan's sails as an accuser of Christians. It it takes all of the, the fangs out of the mouth of the dragon, or as Jesus later put it, it binds him. He is, he's got his hands tied. The freedom that he had to accuse the brothers before is now completely gone because Christ triumphed over him by paying for our sins. Men and women, this is the one and only hope the Bible says that we have. The one and only hope. It's not peace and harmony on this earth. It's not seeing things go one way or another politically. It's not getting happy or healthy. The one hope that we have is that each of us standing guilty before God and justly deserving hell for the ways that we have usurped God's rightful place and robbed him of his glory, that each of us would find forgiveness and mercy from God because God himself became a man in Jesus, unwilling to simply give us what we deserved. He came after us as a man. Jesus then takes my place on the cross. He literally takes my sin and pays for it by dying. And in the process, he gives me his righteousness, this divine exchange and his sinlessness. And as a result of that, I get the benefits. He gets the the downsides of my sin. I get the upsides of his righteousness, including being reconciled with God as a son, as a daughter. I can now say God is my God because of Christ. Banking your life on this and following Christ as Lord, that's what it means to be a Christian. Satan has been defeated if you have repented of your sins and embraced Christ as Lord. If you're here with us this morning or you're watching on our live stream and you've not committed your life to Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, can I urge you to open up the Bible and talk with a Christian you know or give us a call here at the church office. We'd love to get together with you even if we have to do it over Zoom and talk about who Christ is and who he wants to be for you because Jesus came after you and he wants to reconcile you to himself. That's the only hope that we have. So Colossians chapter 2 tells us that in the most significant event in this war since it started, since Genesis 3.15, Jesus' death and resurrection defangs Satan, as it were. He is defeated. And what's more, if we're back in Revelation 12, we not only find out that his accusations have lost all of their steam, but he has actually been evicted. He has lost his place. He's kicked out of heaven. And that's good news. And yet it's tainted good news. That leads us to our third and final point this morning. The second half of this text is the victory song in heaven because of the ultimate defeat of Satan. But you'll notice the victory song, while it is raucous and celebratory, it is also tinged with some heaviness. Verse 10. I heard a loud voice in heaven. This turns out to be the voice of a crowd, the voice of, of saints, of people who have died and gone to heaven, and they're seeing Satan ultimately be uh, destroyed, and they are shouting with joy, saying, Now! The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ, the Messiah, have come. Man, we've been waiting for this for centuries throughout the Old Testament. God promised he would send a Savior. Now he's finally here. And as a result, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. The one who accuses them night and day before God. They conquered him. How? By the blood of the Lamb. That's what we just saw in Colossians 2. Because Christ died 
there is victory, but also by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. And what that is saying is that God's people show that Christ has won when they go through hard times and still hold on to Jesus no matter what it costs them because having Jesus and losing everything is still winning. Having Jesus and losing everything is still winning and we show that when we lose everything and we are still overjoyed in Christ and his victory. All of God's people will suffer loss, some of them even the loss of their own lives, up to and even including death. And that's how they show that Satan has lost. The lie that God told Adam and Eve, you will be better off without God than with him, is shown to be a lie. I can lose everything, I still have God, I win. But now look at how this song ends. Verse 12. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Satan's finally gone. We got rid of that creep. Hallelujah. (laughs) But, but, woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, for he knows his time is short. Though defanged, humiliated, kicked out of heaven, though the fatal blow has ultimately been struck and Satan has ultimately lost, he's not yet quite completely done for. He's not completely done for yet. He's thrown down to the earth in a rage which is bad news for anybody who lives there. Like, you know, us. And so, here's the great paradox. Victory has been won, and yet life is still war. In fact, Satan has a very specific target, and that target of his wrath is Christians. I mentioned earlier that there was twice in this passage where the Apostle John, I think I mentioned, specifically identifies a, the meaning of a symbol. The second one occurs if you drop down to verse 17. The dragon became furious with the woman, a key figure in this ongoing vision of chapter 12, and he went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. So what does that mean? Satan's out making war on the descendants of this woman and who she is is not specifically defined in the text. It's not hard to figure out, but that's not specifically defined. Although what is defined is who are her children? Who are the people against whom Satan is making war? Keep reading verse 17. Those who keep the commandments of God and who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Once again, it's as if as if God just doesn't want us to miss what's being said here. Christians, when you're on this earth, guess what? (laughs) Satan is angry. And he is aiming what wrath he has left and he's trying to spend it against you. He's trying to spend it against you. Sometimes theologians refer to the nature of God's kingdom as being already and not yet. Already, but not yet. Both. The kingdom of God is already here, but it's not yet fully here. Satan has already been defeated, but not yet fully defeated. It's it's as if, if you think of it as a plant, like the seeds of Satan's defeat were sown clear back in the beginnings of the Bible when God promised that he would send a Messiah who would crush the head of the serpent. But we didn't see anything come from that for centuries. Finally, when Jesus comes and he dies and he rises from the dead, that seed breaks through the ground and starts shooting up toward the sky and toward the sun. It's like, whoa, it's finally here. We've been watering and and praying that this thing would grow and it's finally here and you can see it. But it's still not in full flower and full maturity. That day is yet going to come when the victory of God over Satan is fully consummated. Sticking with our World War II theme, the death and resurrection of Christ is a lot like the Allies invading northern France and getting a foothold at Normandy during the D-Day invasions. And all the military historians will tell you, like, once that happened, the end of World War II was was predetermined at that point. The Nazis were in disarray. They were in retreat. There's no way they could continue to prosecute this war on multiple fronts. Um, It was was a done deal at that point. It It was a sure, foregone conclusion that the Allies were going to win. But the war didn't stop on D-Day, did it? 
Even in retreat, the Nazi soldiers still had guns with bullets in them. And Allied soldiers still fought and were still killed. The Bible says that's the kind of case, that's the kind of place we're living in as Christians now. The final victory has already been won, but it's not fully over yet. It remains that life is war. So question, what do you expect? What do we expect? I see Christians in some cases being quite disillusioned and even jaded, perhaps just checking out of the the whole system. Maybe worst case, just almost giving up on God, like looking around the world and saying, man, if this is what God being in control looks like, man, I'm not sure I can even believe in this God who's in control anymore because when I look around, it sure doesn't look like it. Can you relate? Be honest, most of us can. There's times I've felt like that. Really, God? I believe you're there, but wow, what I'm seeing doesn't look like you're there. But then I have to ask myself, what do you expect? Matt, what do you expect? Clearly you're expecting that the victory of Christ means everything's going to be good right now. Just like the apostles in Acts chapter 1, right? Like they're waiting for Jesus to overthrow Rome, and they're waiting for Jesus to overthrow Rome, and they're waiting for Jesus to overthrow Rome, and then he gets arrested, whipped, beaten, and killed. And they're like, what just happened? And then he rises from the dead, and now they're really like, whoa, what just happened? This is amazing. And so in Acts chapter 1, they start, and they're like, okay, Jesus, now is this the time that you're going to overthrow those nasty Romans and fix everything that's broken with the world? I mean, you just rose from the dead. That's pretty amazing. So now you're going to clean everything up, right? What does he say? (laughs) Guys, you don't get it yet. Paraphrase. He says, no, no, no. It's not for you to know when the final fixing of the world is going to come. That's only for God to know. Here's what you do. I want you guys to go. I want you to wait for my Holy Spirit to come and fill you and empower you, and then you are going to be my witnesses while life is war. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the utter ends of the earth because I'm redeeming people. (laughs) Before I wipe out all evil for good, I am redeeming people so that they can experience life. And they're like, oh, okay. I wonder if we need the same message today. When we get disillusioned, what do we expect? If we expect that God's sovereign reign is going to make everything better, or if we quail when it's not good and we get discouraged, overly discouraged and overly disillusioned, what do we expect? And whatever we're expecting, I guarantee it didn't come from the New Testament. Here's just a quick sample of how the New Testament begins to shape our lives and teaches us what to expect. Most of the authors and contributors to the New Testament, this is just a quick survey. We start with Jesus himself, John 16, 33. This is the night before he dies. He's talking to his disciples about what's going to happen to them. And he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace because in the world you will have tribulation. He had told them, if the world hated me, they're going to hate you too. And then the world went off and tortured him to death. (laughs) He said, guess what, guys? It's going to happen to you too. Life is going to be hard, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The final victory has been won. But understand, in this world, you will have tribulation. Luke, who recorded the book of Acts, teaches the same thing. Acts chapter 14, verse 22. (laughs) The apostle Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey are going to these different cities and they're preaching the gospel and people are coming to Christ and they're starting churches and then they end up in this one city where there's such opposition that the apostle Paul actually gets stoned. And that had nothing to do with psychedelics. It had everything to do with rocks. They literally beat him to death with rocks. Or at least they thought they beat him to death. It turns out he didn't quite die. So after the angry mob leaves, he gets up and he staggers back into the city and the people who are with him are like, oh my gosh, you almost died. That was horrible violence. Where is God in the midst of all of this? And then in Acts 14, 22, it says that Paul and Barnabas went around to all these other churches, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. The apostle Paul's like, this is not a surprise to me. Why are you guys shocked? What do you expect? What do you expect? 
The same Apostle Paul who wrote the book of Romans and taught the same thing in so many places. We'll just, for sake of time, give you one example. Romans 8, 17 tells us that Christians are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. There it is again. This expectation of difficulty and travail that things will not go well in this world from my perspective. The Apostle Peter joins in the chorus, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And the church in America might do well to memorize 1 Peter 4.12 and make it a rallying cry for a couple of generations. Don't be surprised as if something strange were happening. What do you expect? He goes on, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Same thing Paul said in Romans 8.17. So that you may also be rejoice, also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Because we follow Jesus, we share the same suffering and rejection that he shared. We share the same hardships that he faced in a sin-cursed world and we will then share the same glory. We look forward to the victory when it comes. James, the brother of Jesus, in a text that Matt Cunningham preached here last weekend, counted all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Not if, when. When, when life is hard, when things seem to be going to pieces all around you, expect it and count it joy because God has purposes in it. The testing of your faith develops steadfastness and on he goes. And last but not least, the Apostle John. In our text today, Revelation 12, 12. Woe to you, O earth and sea. The devil has come to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. What, brothers and sisters, do we expect? I think we're listening to the New Testament. We will expect that life is war. We will expect it to be hard. And we won't be so caught off guard when it takes place. What does developing a wartime mindset really look like? I want to encourage us to to talk about that this week in our community life groups, around our dinner tables with our friends, maybe in our Bible studies because I think it can mean a lot of things. What does it mean to have a a wartime mindset? This is not, again, being combative toward other people. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12 tells us, like, put on the whole armor of God and get ready to go to war. But before it says that, it says our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Developing a wartime mindset does not mean getting determined to oust Donald Trump from the White House or to make sure Joe Biden doesn't get in the White House. To to put on the armor and go to war does not mean to remake society in our image. What it means is to take this long-haul mindset because your adversary, the devil, the Bible says, not people, but Satan, is out there. What does developing a wartime mindset mean? Just a couple of thoughts. I want to encourage us. This is not an exhaustive list. First of all, it would mean, I think, that we extend our time horizons. A wartime mindset extends time horizons. Like we know that ultimate victory is coming if you believe the Bible, but you realize it may not be in our lifetimes. And so we just assume that we will be on a really hard road for the rest of our earthly existence. And we're just not surprised when things seem to be blowing up all around us. We expect it. All those who put their hope in short-term healing, comfort, and success are always disappointed eventually, often become jaded. It's a good question to ask. Do our emotional reactions and our experience reflect a heart that is deeply rooted in Christ's final and future victory? Or am I in a pattern of experiencing anxiety, anger, or disillusionment based on what's happening right now? There's a lot of long faces among Christians these days, and sometimes the longest face is the one I see in the mirror in the mornings. I've got to ask myself, what am I expecting? Secondly, A wartime mindset, I think, focuses energy on the long-term journey. Focuses energy on a long, hard journey. If we don't waste energy, if we have this kind of wartime mindset, being surprised or outraged at every new pain or injustice or problem in the world, I feel compelled in this current climate to say and to clarify that doesn't mean we disengage from the world or cease to care about the world. That's not true at all. 
Anger is right at times. We should be angry when we see people getting treated differently because of the color of their skin. We should be angry when we see people who are so poor not getting access to basic resources when the resources are all around. We should be angry when we see the government sanctioning the killing of children who are unborn. These things rightly should make us angry. There's plenty of things to be angry about and to be involved in. We're not talking about having a blasé attitude toward evil or disengaging from the world. Having said that, that's not what we're talking about this morning. That's not what we're talking about this morning. Rather, what we're talking about is turning off the hype machine. You know what I mean by that? Turning off the hype machine. Everything around us, particularly in our media culture, is so designed to get us to be angry and to be hyped as if the latest thing is the biggest thing and the greatest existential threat to all of humanity. And it's just not. But man, if I got 90 minutes where I gather with my church family every Sunday morning, and then I've got hours and hours and hours of consuming political talk radio and television news, talking heads and reading the internet and trolling social media, my head is going to be full of all that hype. And it is really hard to just resist that. So don't resist it. Some of us probably just need to turn it off for a while. Just turn it off for a while. This is why scripture meditation is so important. Am I soaking myself in the perspective of scripture so that my heart is responding to that? This doesn't mean totally disengaging from the world. I read the news. My wife and I voted in every election in our adult life and we'll vote in this one too. We're engaged. But man, some of us need to measure how much of that stuff we're taking in to see how it's affecting us and instead steep ourselves in scripture. Here's a question for us. What would happen if half the anger and the fear that gets expressed on social media was directed toward fervent prayer for the lost? What if half the energy, the anger and the fear, it was directed in fervent prayer for those who don't know Jesus to come to saving faith in Christ? Friends, I bet we'd see a revival in our city. Do you want to find out? I do. Let's try it. Let's try it. What if we turn off some of that media and turn on fervent prayer for our friends and our neighbors? Lastly, a wartime mindset not only has extended time horizons and focuses energy on that long journey, but it hopes in Christ's ultimate victory. That's actually the subject of next Sunday's sermon. Christ has won, and how does that impact us? So we'll end there today. The point is simply this. If we learn anything, not only from the book of Revelation, but from the entire New Testament, we learn that life is war. We should expect that as Christians. Put our hopes in the right place. How can God help us develop the right kind of wartime mentality so that we can serve his purposes here? I want to ask the music team to come back up here. And we're going to sing God's praises to anchor our hearts in the truths of Scripture we know. Would you pray with me? God, I come before you profoundly uh, unworthy to deliver the sermon that was just delivered because I'm the first guy in line that needs to be challenged with what do I expect because I find myself expecting all kinds of different things. But God, we, we seek to be a people here at Harvest who are grounded in your word. We seek to be a people who define and identify ourselves based on who you are and what you have said. That our experience, we desire to be a people whose experience is shaped by the truths of the gospel. So shape us now, I pray. And God, even as we sing together, I pray that you would shape our hearts to love you and honor you and praise you the way that you do. We give ourselves to you, very imperfect people, but ready to be grounded in your word. So cement us to yourself. For our good and your glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.